Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Yeah, great stuff, guys. Thank you. But welcome now to The Exchange. I'm Brian Sullivan. Here's what's ahead. Breaking news on Boeing. CEO David Calhoun speaking to reporters right now about when the 737 MAX may get back into service. You will hear from Calhoun in moments. Plus, business leaders in Davos. They're expressing concern about the coronavirus. The markets, though, seem to be taking it in stride. Who may have it right? And Netflix's new metric is raising eyebrows on Wall Street. Two minutes for a view? Really? That's ahead. But let's begin with today's markets. Bob Pisani is downtown at the NYSE, and he is live with another record day. Bob. Brian, good to see you. Strong earnings report from IBM keeping the Dow afloat, but just barely. Elsewhere, new historic highs for the S&P 500, NASDAQ 100 as well. That's strength in semiconductors there. That's a good sign. We're waiting for that Boeing conference call to start. Boeing is at a 52-week low right now. Now, United Airlines earlier said it doesn't expect to be able to fly the 737 MAX this summer after Boeing pushed back its forecast for when regulators will sign off on that plane. Elsewhere, two weak points, transports down again. It's the airlines, the shipper, logistics stocks all week. That's continuing blowback from concerns over in China. Finally, China may have said it is taking steps to control the coronavirus, but the oil markets don't appear that convinced. Oil is at a six-week low. I would note natural gas also getting hit on all of the warm weather we've been experiencing. So exploration and production names like Marathon, Apache, and Devon all down. Brian, back to you. All right, Bob Pisani. Bob, thank you very much. It was the best of times, and that Dickens line was President Trump's message as he sat down with Joe Kernan this morning in Davos. But of course, you know how the rest of the opening lines for A Tale of Two Cities goes. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. And J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon certainly voices some of the more concerning aspects about the global economy and financial markets on Squawk Box today. Listen to this. We have an incredible economy. The consumer has never been so rich. They, you know, they're between the tax cuts and the regulation cuts. People forget about regulation. I think it might have been more important than the tax cuts. But we have a, uh, a consumer in the United States that has never done so well. Uh, and I think we're really poised to have, trem- I think we have tremendous potential. You know, we're at a point where we've done so well. I think we're going to do much better. We have tremendous potential. Is Chairman Powell out of the doghouse? Is he, are rates where they should be? Are you satisfied with, with his Well, I don't recent... want to talk doghouse. I wish he didn't raise the rates. That was not what I thought would happen. Are we at a good happen. level now, do you feel? I think the rate should go down. Should go down further? No, because I think the dollar is very, very strong, and I think the rate should go down. Uh, we have a very strong dollar, and that sounds good, and it is good in many ways, but it's very bad in terms of manufacturing. I've created almost 700,000 manufacturing jobs. The past administration said manufacturing is dead, which I said, tell me about that. How do you, you can't do that. And we have had a tremendous success, but it's harder with a strong dollar. And uh, I want this dollar to be strong. I want it to be so powerful. I want it to be great. But if you lower the interest rates, 
so many good things would happen. The markets right now are fine. I mean, they're in a Goldilocks place. The only thing I have trepidation about is is negative interest rates, QE, uh, and the diversion between stock prices and bond prices and yields and stuff like that. Uh, It's kind of one of the great experiments of all time, and we still don't know what the ultimate outcome is. The biggest surprise would be inflation, if you have any kind of inflation in the United States. And that right now, people think central banks around the world can do whatever they want. They can't. Right. They will have to be reactors as opposed to just actors if you see adverse consequences going a certain way. I think it's very hard for central banks to forever make up for bad policy elsewhere. And, and that, that, that puts that's... them in a trap. And we're a little bit in that trap today yeah. with rates that are so low uh, around the world. This is one of the great companies of the world, let's say, as of a year ago, and then all of a sudden things happened. I am so disappointed about it. It had a tremendous impact. You know, when you talk about growth, it's so big that some people say it's more than a half a point of GDP. So Boeing, uh, big, big disappointment to me. Big disappointment. All right, lots of big comments from some big-name players there, the president, of course, and the CEO, Jamie Dimon. So how do those who actually manage money for a living see it right now? Joining us now is Sandy Villery. He is partner at Villery & Company and portfolio manager of the Villery Balance Fund, and Craig Callahan, president and founder of Icon Advisors. Sandy and Craig, thank you both very much. Craig, I will begin with you. Uh, you know, they, listen, they were together in some ways. They were a little bit different. Jamie Dimon's whole entire sort of edict is to manage risk. I know, and I look through your fund, Bank of America is one of your biggest holdings. Do you think the big banks and the financials are doing it right? Are they managing risk properly right now? Yes, we're fine with that. All last year, people worried about bank profitability. They thought banks could not make money in a low interest rate setting. They worried about a flat yield curve, and banks were just fine. Those worries were irrational. Banks are bringing out very nice profits. We like where they're positioned. Okay, Sandy, how do you see it? Do you think that we are still in a, in a growth period, given everything that's gone on? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to see with, uh, you know, with, with low, low rates and you've got inflation that still isn't near where the Fed's 2% target is. It seems like, you know, the market can, t- can continue to, you know, I guess melt up a little bit further. I mean, the pendulum always swings a little bit too far in both directions. And the question is, how far can it, can it swing? But things do look pretty, uh, pretty rosy. And you look at the, the dividend yield on the S&P 500 at a 1, 1.8, it's still higher than the 10-year Treasury. So that is also going to attract equity dollars. You know, though, Craig, that we, we heard Paul Tudor Jones yesterday saying, hey, it's kind of looking like 1999. I mean, I don't need to remind our viewers that, that are over the age of, you know, 35 what that means. It means that maybe in a year from now there could be a dramatic slowdown. Is that how you view it? We never use P.E. or price to book. We're value investors. We compute intrinsic value. And we find stocks on average right now to be about 13 percent below our estimate of fair value. So we would expect the market to move higher over the next year. Wait, 13 percent below intrinsic fair value on what metrics? Yes. Well, we consider their earnings. We project those earnings growing out into the future and then discount them back to their present value, considering interest rates and risk. And computing value that way, we find the market to be below our estimate of fair value. You know, Sandy, the one thing I like about you guys, maybe you just sort of think differently down there in New Orleans, is basically finding names that we don't normally talk about, Teleflex and Roper Technologies. Yeah, uh, Teleflex is a great uh, kind of a pure play medical device company. It was founded in 1943, but they've got a, a, a great uh, urology product for 
for men with enlarged prostate, which I think uh, no matter what happens, that's going to continue. Um, so I think that's a, a, a strong name. And we like Roper a lot as well. They make acquisitions in the technology area, uh, very high margin, very high cash flow, and uh, a lot of recurring revenue. So one that I think is going to do well. And, and while it's a little bit expensive, it doesn't take into account the future acquisitions that they're, uh, they're going to make. So we like those two names a lot. Okay, Craig, what would you like to see on a macro level from the Federal Reserve? Should they just sit on their hands the entire year and basically, what do they say, don't just do something, sit there? Well, a year ago when they raised the Fed funds rate, they drained reserves and they slowed the money supply growth year over year down to near 1%. That was terrible. Then when they eased last summer, we now have M1 growing at between 55 to 7% year over year, and I'm fine with that. I think that positions the economy very well. Okay, Craig and Sandy, it was a pleasure to have you guys on the program. Have a great day. We'll speak with you soon. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Oh, by the way, speaking of the big-time macro from Davos, don't forget to tune in tomorrow morning, 8.15 a.m. Eastern Time. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin will join the Squawk Box team live, 8.15 a.m. Eastern Time. A big one you cannot miss. All right, on deck. Boeing's money woes. It is not just airline compensation and lawsuits the company will have to pay out. We'll dive in. Plus... For the coronavirus to groundings, it could be a double whammy for the airline stocks this summer. We'll take a look at the ones that may be better positioned to handle the disruptions. And from 70 minutes to two minutes, a look at Netflix's announcement that last night caught investors' attention. Speaking of two minutes, we're back at two. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back. The World Health Organization is set to hold an emergency meeting to discuss the global public health risks of the coronavirus, which in just a matter of days has killed 17 people and sickened more than 500. Meg Terrell joining us now with an update on where we stand right now. Meg. That's right, Brian. So this is moving pretty quickly. Already the case counts are mounting. Right now we know that more than 500 people have been sickened, mainly in mainland China, where this originated in a city called Wuhan. But several neighboring countries have also reported some cases. And, of course, we had our first case in the United States confirmed by the CDC just yesterday, a man in his 30s in Washington state. They say he is doing well and he's cooperating. Uh, However, they have stepped up screening here in the United States. CDC had already marked three airports here in the U.S. for entry screening, LAX, San Francisco, uh, and New York's JFK. And yesterday they said they were going to add Chicago and Atlanta to that entry screening. And all people coming into the United States from Wuhan are going to be funneled through those five airports. Now, the WHO is having this emergency committee meeting to determine whether to declare this a public health emergency of international concern. That is an acronym known in the public health community as FAKE. And they have only ever declared 
five others of these since 2005. And you can see the severity uh, of those outbreaks, including the two Ebola outbreaks we've seen in the last five to six years. Um, what that would do is sort of galvanize an international response and really be a marker of just how severe this could potentially be. But right now, the problem is we just don't know a lot about this, including how well it spreads between people and how deadly it could potentially turn out to be. They do believe it's airborne, correct? It spreads similarly to SARS, uh, and if they basically say close contact. So if you and I are talking within three feet, it could potentially spread. Um, other things they say, uh, sharing utensils, hugging, kissing, things like that. Um, so kind of similar to how you talk about the flu. And I understand there was a warning, I think, from the Chinese government, particularly the residents of Wuhan, which is sort of in the cent- mid-central area of China. If you feel sick, do not go out. Yes, they are taking this very seriously. And according to our Eunice Yoon, who's reporting from China, she's saying that Wuhan officials have told people if they're going out in public to wear face masks and that city of 11 million people has advised people to try not to travel. All right. Make sit tight for a second. Let's also bring in another voice to this conversation. Dr. William Schaffner, he is professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University. Doctor, thank you for joining us. Uh, two quick questions. How real is the coronavirus threat globally in your mind, and how does it differ from a SARS or an H1N1 type of illness? Well, this coronavirus does differ, Brian. Uh, The SARS virus had a high mortality, as did MERS, and it was spread, the SARS virus, very readily from person to person. MERS, not so. Each of these viruses has its own personality or characteristics. And as Meg said, we still don't know whether this virus is spread readily from person to person. I think at the moment, the international hazard is very limited. But it's good that the World Health Organization Committee is having a look at this and has it top of the mind. Dr. Schaffner, I was talking with um, Scott Gottlieb yesterday, of course, the former FDA commissioner. And he was saying what we could see if this starts to spread widely is sort of a double flu season. And flu, of course, should not be underestimated. It kills a huge number of people. Um, How are you looking at the risk of what this could end up potentially looking like? Well, in comparison, flu is a good idea. As I've been telling people, influenza is going to cause many more hospitalizations and unfortunately many more deaths than this new coronavirus will this this season. Uh, At the moment, it looks, as your data have shown, There are hundreds of people who were infected, according to the Chinese authorities. But at the moment, I think the death toll is 17. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say only, but that's a very big ratio, different than SARS, where it was 30 to 50 percent. So this is a small percentage of those who have been infected so far. You know, listen, again, not minimizing anybody's pain, and it could grow, but 500 out of a global population of 8-plus billion a a fractional number. As you noted, doctor, there is a vicious influenza bug going around. My daughter got it. She was sick for about eight days. You don't want to overwhelm doctor's offices or ERs. When should people know? You know, they have a fever, they start to cough and they watch the news. They hear about this. You don't want them to overreact. We clearly don't want them to overreact. If you get flu-like symptoms, call your health care provider don't go to the office and spread it to everybody in the waiting room, and your health care provider may well prescribe an antiviral for you. Now, if you've been to China yourself or you have had contact with someone who's been in China, let them know that, and then they'll put you in the appropriate isolation precautions, collect the specimens, send those to the CDC. I'm sure the CDC is getting specimens now from around this country. And we'll see if there are any other importations. At the moment, we have just one. 
There will be a few more, but I don't think it'll take off in the United States. Already we're hearing about industry and government at the NIH working on potential vaccines and therapeutics uh, for this new coronavirus. Uh, do you think that that is the potential solution if this becomes bigger? And can those things get developed quickly enough to really help? Sure, that's the right way to go. And it's wonderful. The Chinese scientists identified this virus, sequenced the genome, and let the world's science know about it. They shared that right away. So at the NIH, they're working now on a diagnostic test that would be quick. Boy, that would be helpful clinically and in public health. Therapeutics, of course. We don't have a spare, a special therapeutic for coronaviruses. And of course, early stages of a vaccine development. That's what we want science to do. We want to get ahead of this. Yeah, as um, the last few years with that list that you provided us, a lot of bad things in the last decade or so. Dr. Schaffner, thank you very much for joining us. Vanderbilt University, Meg Terrell, of course. I know you got that two o'clock call at the WHO. Thank you very much. We'll look forward to hearing from you later on. Coming up, United Airlines basically throwing in the 737 MAX towel for the summer. Are Boeing's woes any closer to ending? Plus, using virtual reality to learn how to deal with angry, rude customers at the store? It's happening. We'll tell you about what they're doing. And a reminder, you can always watch us or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. Download it today. We're back in two minutes. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. All right, right now, David Calhoun, the CEO of Boeing, is on a conference call with the media. The conference call is not being broadcast live, but Phil LeBeau is on that call. And moments ago, he actually asked Calhoun a question. No idea what that question is, but we're going to get Phil on the horn here, or hopefully on camera, on the exchange the moment he drops off that call. In the meantime, let's bring in Michael Bruno. He is senior business editor for Aviation Week magazine. Of course, Phil will join us when he is able uh, you know, Michael, it looks like United's kind of throwing in the towel for the summer. Uh, the company making Boeing, rather, making comments about June, July. We've heard comments before. The people that you talk to every day, is there anybody out there who has suggested the 737 MAX will not fly this year or maybe ever again? I don't think anybody's suggesting that the MAX will never fly again uh, for all kinds of reasons. It's uh it's a must-get-back-in-the-air scenario. Um, and not just for the airlines, but for the suppliers, for Boeing. Everybody who's a stakeholder in the aerospace industry needs that airplane to get back up. It's a question of when. Well, and, now, uh, Michael, isn't it a question of safety? I mean, there were two fatal accidents with the same plane. 
that has, there is. That, that change, they're tweaking the software on, but some people months you know, for months have questioned the physical design of the airplane, specifically the engine position on the wing. That's true. It is a question of safety, but every indication we've had is that the FAA is moving toward a certification, a recertification, to assume that it is a safe airplane. And, of course, other people have argued this will be the most scrutinized airplane, probably, or at least major airline that's ever flown again. So I, safety is correct, but we're going to get there. The question, of course, is when. It looks like yeah. summer. They're going to miss the peak travel season. Yeah, let's see if we can get some answers. I know Phil LeBeau literally just hopped off that call. I assume, Phil, uh, welcome, by the way. The call is still going on. What were some of the main headlines? What was the question that you asked David Calhoun? And that's why I was delayed in getting here. I was asking Dave Calhoun the question. I said, what was the trigger for the decision to put off plans for this plane or expectations of this plane being approved for flight again by regulators until the middle of this year? And he said, basically, it came down to the decision that they made on requiring simulator training for pilots. Those rules are still being written exactly how much training will be required. That remains to be seen. But he said once we made that decision, it was clear that we needed to set perhaps a more realistic timeline. And here's Dave Calhoun talking just a few minutes ago about what the company is doing and their expectations. I believe that it gives, uh, puts the right uh, amount of pressure, and, uh, but at the same time uh, enough uh, time in for discourse with our regulator at every level um, so, that we, uh, so that we can get to the answer sooner rather than later. And that's Dave Calhoun talking about the schedule. I also asked him about production and when that will start up again. Because look at guys, we have a plant out there that is completely shut down. I think the last max has just gone through. Uh, and so there literally are no more planes coming down the assembly line. He says they have a plan in place to when they believe that they are close to recertification or they get the indication that, look, we're almost where we need to be, they will communicate directly with the suppliers and then start laying out a plan for slowly bringing up production again on the 737 MAX. But again, this call is... It's only 15 minutes in. Uh, we're going to talk to him until the top of the hour. Okay, we'll let you get back on that call. Phil Lebeau, we're going to let Phil go. We're going to keep Michael Bruno around. Phil, thank you. See you in a bit. Uh, two comments that we're getting from some of the headlines crossing on the call. We've got a team listening to it as well here. In fact, we've got three comments. So, Michael, I'm going to give you those comments. I'm going to read them. You'll forgive me. I'd like you to comment, number one, to our previous point. Uh, Calhoun says, no shareholder value without safety first. Also, he does expect max production will resume, quote, months before mid-year return to service. So that would imply to Phil's point that if you're going to return the plane to service in August and you say months, maybe you're thinking April, May time frame for the reduction. But here's what I want you to comment on. Calhoun says he does not think that recent wiring or software issues are, quote, serious problems to the return of the 737 MAX. This is the plane now, Michael, that has been out of service for almost a year. If those aren't serious problems, what is the problem? A lot of those problems are stemming from the fact that this airplane's going, getting, you know, looked over with a fine-tooth comb. And from what we've heard at Aviation Week, and I think uh, you folks at CNBC have heard also, is that these problems, relatively speaking, are not major stumbling blocks. And that, again, they're working toward recertification. I am really interested to hear uh, if Mr. Calhoun said that he thinks production can begin 
before return to service, uh, because I think the indications were at around Christmas time when Mr. Muhlenberg lost his job that, you know, they were going to keep production halted basically until they got the ungrounding lifted. So if they think they can get production going again, that's uh, getting to be a relatively bullish stance again. That's the tip off, right? I mean, well, you, listen, you put, you put words into action. I mean, you know, you can say whatever you want, but when the workers start making the fuselages again, you'll know they've got some time. Two quick, two quick things here. Two final points here, Michael. Number one, uh, let's talk about, you know, international. Because, yes, our pilots here in America, I, by the way, I believe I was booked on the last 737 MAX airline flight, March 13th, Houston to LAX. I had no problem getting on the plane. They changed my flight the night of the 12th. I was scheduled to go. With, with all, it was like, I think, the last plane out. And I was going to get on it. I'm confident in our pilots. The issue is not training here. This is a global plane. Isn't the real issue how this is handled around the world where the training programs may not be as robust? It is, absolutely. I mean, there is a difference known between the pilot communities in the United States and the pilot communities through the greater world. In the United States, generally, there's a lot of experience. Many of the pilots have military training. Uh, this has been the way this way for decades. Overseas, there's a pilot crunch. There are just not enough pilots. And you have pilots coming in ab initio. That means essentially walking off the street, getting trained, getting fully certified locally, and then being put in the cockpit in a relatively shorter period of time compared to in the U.S. Yeah. So safety here, when we talk about safety, I really do think they're looking at safety in regards to pilot training worldwide, particularly in communities and other countries where they just and, don't have the American experience. And finally, I know this is a school of thought that many consider just to be dumb or wrong or on the wrong track. And everybody says, you know, some people agree. Some people think it's, a, it's the dumbest idea ever. Nobody's talked about the public side of the story. What is the public going to do on your app, on any phone? You can see exactly what kind of plane you're on. I heard Jim Cramer talking about it this morning. I've talked about it for two months and been poo-pooed. Here's the thing. What happens if the public does not get on the plane? Suddenly United's got a flight that's 40% empty because people don't want to get on it. What do they do then? Uh, it'll be a problem, certainly. They're going to ship the plane back to Boeing and say, give me, my, give me a refund. This plane, my, my customers will not get on it. Yeah, I think what you're going to see is the airlines in particular kicking off a major PR campaign to try to convince their customers, go ahead and fly. It's safe. Uh, we wouldn't put you in jeopardy. So if that happens, if there are enough customers not getting on, the airlines are going to be spending a lot more money. And that means they're probably going to come back to Boeing and ask for more money, too. Yeah, and there's another potential financial hit for Boeing as well. Michael Bruno, Aviation Week. We appreciate your views, Michael, on a still-developing story. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, still ahead. From Boeing's woes to the coronavirus, the airlines, United, American, Delta, et cetera, facing other headwinds, are there any of the stocks that are actually worth owning? Plus, the incredible story of a phone hack, a Saudi prince, and the world's richest man. And New Jersey, your big run in sports betting may have crapped out. Why California could become America's sports betting capital. The Exchange is now a podcast. Listen to your favorite parts of the show you might have missed. Sign up now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. The $100 billion club in Big Blue's big run today. Two of your top three stock stories right now. Let's blast through them. First up, Tesla. Shares of Tesla 
now giving it a market cap of more than $100 billion. Good for investors, good for Elon Musk, because the number of stock option bonuses for him will trigger if that cap stays above $100 billion or more for an average of one month and six months. By the way, Musk owns 34 million shares of Tesla. It's worth $17 billion right now. Stock 2, IBM, shares up today about 3%. This after beating on both the top and the bottom line and breaking a five-quarter streak of year-over-year declines. Company also giving better-than-expected full-year guidance. And shares of drug maker Moderna up nearly 5%. That company says it is working with health officials to develop a potential vaccine for that coronavirus. All right, stocks down. Let's get a CNBC News update now with Sue Herrera. Sue. Hello, Brian. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. Attorney General William Barr unveiling a new presidential commission on law enforcement meant to address the problems that it faces. Barr outlining those problems during his opening remarks at the Justice Department. Law enforcement faces more and greater challenges than ever before. If the new obstacles presented by technology weren't enough, in many communities, our officers also must confront a wave of social problems, such as homelessness and drug addiction and mental illness. Democratic presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard is suing Hillary Clinton for defamation. She filed the lawsuit in a New York City federal court, claiming Clinton lied about her to harm her campaign by falsely stating that she was a Russian asset. And a 17-year-old girl in Western India has broken her own Guinness World Record for the longest hair on a teenager. With 75-inch long tresses, it takes Nilanshi Patel up to half an hour to dry her hair after washing it. And it's just as long, about an hour, to comb it. Takes my teenagers that long as well. I'm challenging, Sue, I'm, cha- I'm challenging that. It, it, no, it's got to take much longer than a half an hour That's what I thought to dry as the well. hair. I mean, come I thought on. that as well. well, we'll 75 see. inches is six feet, three inches yes. worth of hair. Yes. It's a lot of hair, Brian. That's a lot of hair. It's a lot of hair. Sue Herrera, thank you very much. You got it. All right. Netflix has a new view on views. California could become America's sports betting capital. And did the Saudis hack Jeff Bezos's phone? That's all coming up in Rapid Fire. Is two minutes of view a gambling game changer, virtual job chaining? Was Jeff Bezos' phone really hacked by the Saudis? It's time for what else? Rapid fire with that lineup. And here now with this lineup is Robert Frank, Kate Rogers, and Eric Chemi. Welcome all. All right, topic one. Netflix shares are down a bit, disappointing subscriber growth domestically. But what's getting attention is that Netflix has totally changed its metric for what they can call a view. And it is one that will dramatically increase the number of views for its shows. Let's bring in Julia Borston with more. I don't think two minutes has ever gotten more attention in movie history right now than just now, Julia. (laughs) Well, that's right, Brian. So Netflix is changing how it counts its viewership of its shows. So previously, they would count a view if an account, one of their accounts had completed 70% of an episode of a TV show or 70% of a film. Now, they're changing that to when their accounts or their members choose to view something. That means that they've chosen to watch for at least two minutes. It doesn't count if it autoplays. And they have said that this new metric, surprise, surprise, is 35% higher on average. So they are counting more people um, who are viewing two or more minutes and if they've completed 70%. So, of course, this is drawing some blowback on Twitter, 
people saying if you watch for two minutes and then you turn off after three or four minutes and maybe you don't like the show or movie very much. But Netflix defended this move, saying that, in fact, this is similar to what The New York Times does with their most popular articles or what the BBC does with the most search for shows. So trying to say that this is going to even the playing field for their shorter content um, or for mm. their uh, interactive shows. They're, they're getting some cover there. Eric Chemi, but listen, investors look at these numbers. And if suddenly the numbers of views start going up, they may not know this story exists. It could influence the it's, stock. It's data inflation because now we're not going to know what a real number is. So consider a regular TV show. When we say, hey, that show had 5 million viewers, when we talk about regular TV, we mean that the entire show for its hour-long or two-hour-long show averaged 5 million the entire time. So yeah. compared to this... Yo, TV's way underinflated because you got to get those people the entire length of the show. So when they say Super Bowl's got 100 million people, they meant 100 people watched it the whole way, yeah. not for two minutes. It's also, totally not, it's also minutes. not, Kate Rogers, how we talk as human beings, right? If I said to you, did you see the season finale? I'm like, yeah, but I turned it off. I went to bed. After two minutes. That means you didn't actually <laughs> watch it. You turned it off. You either didn't like it or you're tired. You didn't finish it. And I think Netflix, with this kind of data inflation, could skew investor thoughts. Well, and also our investors looking at Netflix and saying, hey, you seem really concerned about all this competition that's cropping up. And now you're even inflating your viewership numbers around it. And I understand the point that they're making about the New York Times and YouTube and, and the way articles. that they so measure those metrics. But it's a totally, totally yeah. different medium. These are full-length shows. Exactly. I've tried out a lot of shows for two minutes. I certainly <laughs> wouldn't count myself as a viewer. And not just that. It's not but, just the show, but they, they credit you for the entire series if you watch the first two minutes of the first of the series. What? Yeah. No way. But guys, yeah. to, but guys, to go back to what Eric Chemi was saying, think about how different this is than TV with advertising. With TV with advertising, those ratings matter because they want to know how many people are seeing those ads. Netflix thinks about things differently. They don't have ads. Reed Hastings just reiterated that he's not interested in having ads. What he cares about is having people sign up and hold on to the service. So maybe they think of the intention to view as someone thinking that a show is worth at least checking out. And that's what matters but, for get, getting people, you know, minimizing churn and getting people to fair stay enough, committed but, to Netflix. Fair enough. But the executive producer of this fine program, one Sanford Canold, had the smartest thing he's had to say all year today. You know what he said? <laughs> Gyms don't care if you go in there as long as you pay your monthly fees. Why does Netflix care right. so much about how many people watch. If they get the 14 right. bucks as long a month. As you're buying, if you have a correct. account, yeah. then you're You happy. have a gym you pay for for three years, you've never gone. The gym doesn't care. They're probably so happy you didn't show up. much money on original content, though, right? Doesn't it matter if people are actually watching it for more than two minutes? Probably it's matters to the, the content creators, yeah. the yeah. but not care. so much as a business. Only what matters is subscribers. And, and ultimately, this could be a sign of engagement, therefore leading to subscriber yep. decline, but that's Which what we care Which, miss about. again in the U.S. and Canada, okay, by the way. Enough. All right, Julia, by, thank you both very much. Julia Borston's on the case. All right, by the way, speaking of media, our CEO, Brian Roberts, will be on Squawk Box tomorrow at 7 a.m. Eastern time. He is, of course, the CEO of Comcast, which is a parent company of NBC Universal and this network. No doubt Brian will talk about the fourth quarter results and our new streaming product, Peacock, which launches, I believe, May 15th. All right, next up. California, already home to the most professional sports teams in the nation, and soon it could be home to the biggest legal sports betting as well. The Golden State just gave a coalition of Native American tribes the green light to circulate petitions seeking to allow sports betting at tribal casinos and horse tracks. One amendment to legalize all sports betting could be on a statewide ballot this fall. Eric, once again, I'll go back to you. There are conditions because what the Native American tribes are also seeking is the ability to have roulette and craps 
in their casinos, something that are not allowed now. Do you think this will happen in California? So state by state, we're seeing this growth around the country. It's been couple of years since the Supreme Court allowed each state to do this. Every state has different politics, right? Some states have the Indian casinos as a powerful lobby. Some states have powerful casino companies. But just like we were talking about data inflation a minute ago, that's what's going on with sports gambling. You look state by state and the ones that have already gotten the things passed, they all said, oh, we're going to make billions of dollars in revenue. And then they actually pass it. It's like, actually, we are making $50,000 a month in revenue because everyone gives these big numbers. New Jersey got $3 billion in gambling revenue. So here's what happens. There's the gross revenue that we all spend in our bets. Sure. So let's say you do the over, you do the under, it all counts as the gross. But the taxes, yeah, but wins, they take the VIG, they take the middle. They, so here's the, they take the VIG, the casino takes the VIG, because the winners get the money from the other guy, they get the VIG, and then the tax rate is some small percentage of the right. VIG. Sure. So if you're betting $100, maybe $1, maybe, it's like pennies going to taxes. So they give these numbers in billions because that's the gross that's spent. And it's just in maybe thousands and millions that they actually but get taxes. But California's whole goal, Kate Rogers, is they don't want people in L.A. to get on I-10 or I-5 and drive, you know, drive, drive, drive to Vegas. To yep. right, go to Prim, Nevada, right over the border and be able to do this stuff when two hours away they live in Victorville. You know, if you live in California, you know what I'm talking about, by the way. Will it work for California? I mean, I, I have another question for Eric, if I may. Okay. Is there, what, is there a, an aversion within the tribal community that they don't want this to be online because they would miss out on, on some of that? If, they, if you if own casinos, you want people to come to your casinos. Casino. Okay, that's, that's what they want. All right. Topic three. The next round of job training that you might get may not even be from an actual human being. A growing list of major American companies, from Fidelity Investments to Walmart, are turning to virtual reality to help train their employees Corporate spending on augmented and VR expected to hit more than $2 billion this year. Kate Rogers, will this work? Will this help increase the better store experience, which is why they ultimately care to get more shoppers in the door? So particularly in this story, Walmart was trying to teach some of its employees soft skills, which are something that can not necessarily uh, be found in the population at large. It's, it's something, you know, in dealing with customers that you want them to do a little bit better, have empathy, et cetera. I think it's a really interesting thing to do. We all know um, that skilled labor is a huge problem right now for companies, large and small. We just talked about it within the manufacturing sector. Uh, last week, small businesses are also dealing with this. So I think it's interesting. It's also a way to train your current staff uh, and not actually use a person to cheaper. do it, right? Right, be honest, it's, it's, right Robert? It's cheaper. It's cheaper well, that's yeah. what, when I was reading about what this does, so that the VR brings you an angry customer standing online who's got some backstory. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, why can't you do that with a real person? And then it, it's cheaper. So you're replacing people yes. with machines, which is what's really happening. But to here. teach people how to be better people. Well, why not, why not do this? We, don't need, we need customer that's training, right. by robots the way. Robots are better people than people. How about we customer teach training? people how to deal with people, so we'll have the robots teach the people. Right. How to and the robots are going to be doing anything Anyway, so the robots should be training with the other robots, and that's that's. But the, the customers always. The people. customers need the to be. Customers the customers get off person. your phone, address the person at the cash register. Totally. If yeah. they're wearing a name tag, call them by name. Get off. Customers need help here too. Anyway, all right. Topic four, <laughs> and finally, the customers always right, Brian. No, they're not. <laughs> the UN is calling for an investigation into allegations the Saudi Crown Prince MBS Mohammed bin Salman may have been involved in the 2018 phone hacking of one Jeff Bezos. Robert, you've been following the story. It gets more insane when we update. What do we know? Bezos made this claim a year ago. Now we have further proof. What happened is Bezos was at a dinner with MBS back in 2018, and they exchanged numbers, and uh, the crown prince got Jeff Zimmer. He shortly thereafter sent him an encrypted video file, which Jeff presumably opened, 
And shortly after that, there was a massive leakage of data on Jeff Bezos's phone. They don't have proof that MBS received it or that this was malware or spyware directly installed by MBS. But we know that right after that, he opened that file, there was a massive amount of leakage. And what he says is that it's part of the Saudi Crown Prince's uh, desire to get revenge for Jamal Khashoggi's murder, it, which, of course, was covered the by the Washington Post, well, which was owned Post. by Jeff Bezos. So it was Jeff Be- The world's richest and ostensibly, I suppose, one of the world's smartest men opened yeah. up an unknown file Right. Well, we don't, him on we don't know if he opened it. We do know that as soon as shortly after it, it you was, have to ex- shortly after it I was sent, that's it. when the data leakage started. Wasn't there something, though, with his girlfriend's family about yes, leaking information brother. as well? So what we also know, which is contrary to this, is that Michael Sanchez, the brother of Lauren Sanchez, his now girlfriend, Jeff Bezos' girlfriend, admitted to sending the National Enquirer some of the texts and messages. And the Wall Street Journal reported that he was paid $200,000. So do we need a Saudi conspiracy to know how the Enquirer got all this stuff? No, Michael Sanchez was paid for it by the it's National It's a good reminder, Enquirer. though, like this is the risk of cyber hacking these days. If you're Jeff Bezos, like, hey, I run Amazon. I'm the richest guy in the world. I'm presumably a tech well, also, expert. Let's, can let's we just get to the bottom line that the girl's brother yeah. sent the pics yeah. for money? Yeah. But also, what's interesting, what's also interesting is... In How that, that's a typical kind of thing? In that, it is? Oh. In that same swing through Silicon Valley where MBS got Jeff's phone number, the, the Crown Prince also met with Tim Cook, the Google guys, yep. Bill Gates, Oprah, all of whom today, you've got to know, are checking their WhatsApp <laughs> for, M, for messages from, from MBS. Okay, guys, thank you very much. Rapid thank Fire you. is over. Robert, Kate, and Eric, thank you very much. All right, coming up. If you're trying to gauge how much of an impact the coronavirus could have on the airline sector, look at what happened in 2014 with Ebola. That's according to your next guest. He'll join us with the bear case scenario. And speaking of airlines, take a look at shares of Boeing. The stock seeing a bit of a comeback, down about half a percent. Remember, the CEO, David Calhoun, on a call right now with Phil LeBeau and other members of the media. Stock was down about 4%. It is coming back right now. Still down, but only by about a half a percent. We'll continue bringing more updates on Boeing as we have them coming up. Sorry, more breaking news coming out of that Boeing conference call with CEO David Calhoun. Phil LeBeau jumping back on with us. Phil, what do you got? Brian, two important pieces of news coming out of this conference call within the last couple of minutes. Take a look at shares of Boeing. Why are they moving higher? Dave Calhoun was asked point blank, has the Boeing board of directors thought about cutting the dividend, scrapping the dividend altogether? That has been an idea that's been thrown out there. He said emphatically, no. When asked why, he said, because we have the financial strength and the wherewithal that we will not have to change the dividend payment that is currently out there. The other piece of news, he was asked point blank, why not just get rid of the max? People have said, scrap the plane altogether. He said, not going to happen. There's too much invested in this project, and they believe too much in the plane, and they believe that they are close to having a solution. They're not putting a timeline on it, but that's why he's saying no cutting the dividend, no getting rid of the max. Brian, back to you. Yeah, dividend, I think $2.05 per share per quarter. It's, it's pretty meaty. Have you talked to anybody, Phil, who says yeah. they should cut the dividend? I mean, you got Spirit Aerosystems laying people off in Kansas. No, because they do. They have the liquidity. And look, they can go out and do another round of, of raising debt. That's not an issue. Uh, they've got the liquidity and they've got the financial wherewithal. All right, Phil, I know the call is still going. We'll let you get back on it. We'll see you back on Power Lunch, I'm sure. Thank you, you very much. All right, well, while the Boeing CEO clearly has faith in the model, 
The 737 MAX remains grounded. And now you have the new risk of coronavirus scaring off travelers. What do these headwinds mean for the airlines? We'll talk about it from an investor perspective. Next. Deeper data at CNBC. The Architecture Billings Index rose six-tenths of a point in December to 52.5. It's the highest reading for the index in a year. All right, airlines really getting hit from two different sides today. You got concerns over the coronavirus outbreak continuing to grow and scaring off travelers. Well, as you've heard, Boeing CEO David Calhoun giving an update on the 737 MAX. So should you just stay away from all airline stocks together? Let's join now by Joseph Denardi. He is airline analyst for Stiefel. Uh, Joe, is there any airline that has as much need for that MAX to return into service as Southwest Airlines? Uh, no. Amongst the U.S. airlines, they're the most uh, dependent on it. Uh, roughly 10-ish percent of their capacity right now should be on the MAX. And so, yeah, they've, they've been the most uh, impacted by, by the grounding. Is that why you've got a hold on the stock? It, that, that, that's part of it. I mean, part of our, our view is that Southwest is going to have to pretty seriously consider uh, diversifying into another fleet type, uh, namely the A320, to try and uh, ensure that they can grow and execute their strategy over the next few years uh, at a time when it's becoming increasingly unclear how many maxes they're going to be able to get over the next few years. Um, and so, you know, we think that could create some some complications to the business model, and it may include M&A. Uh, JetBlue would offer them the ability to very quickly gain access to the 320 uh, with scale and uh, also provide them with, uh, you know, a pretty meaningful presence in New York, which is a market that they've uh, struggled. They've to struggled. In fact, there were actually laws about Southwest being able to fly from Love Field to to the New York area. I know even not that long ago. Do you really think there's a chance Southwest makes a bid for JetBlue? I do. Yeah, I think I think there is a chance. Uh, you know, they've they've said that they are in the process of evaluating whether they want to stick with the 737 as their single aircraft or look at the A320. If they elect to go with the A320 yeah. and diversify the fleet, I think that M&A would, would definitely be a consideration there. And, and speaking of Airbus, does Delta hold a competitive advantage because they have no maxes? And so from a branding perspective, if the public is aware of the plane, it may help Delta and their heavily Airbus inventory. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, Delta doesn't have any max exposure. And, uh, you know, they've said publicly a few times now that they recognize that they've gained share uh, because of the max grounding. It was some of that share coming from Southwest, and they, they intend to keep that share and are making investments in the business uh, to support that. And so if you're Southwest, you can't like hearing that, uh, that one of your main competitors is uh, planning on uh, keeping the share that you've given to them. And so, that's part of the reason that we think uh, Southwest is going to seriously consider uh, changing yeah. the business model and going with the A320. Wow. Very interesting there. Joe Denardi, a Stiefel, looking at JetBlue, JBLU. Joe, thank you very much. By the way, be sure thank to you. catch our exclusive interview with American Airlines CEO Doug Parker tomorrow, 1030 a.m. Eastern time. They've got grounded maxes. That's a big one. That does it for us today. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.